0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, often on this podcast, we have repeat guests, but I am happy to tell you that we have a first-time guest that we have been looking forward to for a very long time. So welcome to uh, Liz Smith, first time on the Bulwark Podcast.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Charlie. I am a long-time listener, but thrilled to be here from um, for, for my first of hopefully many times
0: all right, so uh, for people's background, um, Liz is a Democratic consultant, and she was, you might remember, the senior communications director for Pete Buttigieg's 2020 presidential campaign about uh, 100 years ago. Uh, she's a veteran of other political campaigns, including director of Barack Obama's 2012 rapid response team. So we really wanted to get your perspective on a lot of things. And look, I don't want to uh, ambush you here, but I am going to ask you why, why Democrats suck so much at politics, just so you know. This is is going to come up later on on the podcast. But but we have to start with the latest uh, batshit crazy episode in the Republican Party, although that doesn't seem appropriate for for this, this whole, you know, it's all about the the you know, the pedophile line now on the right. And uh, I wrote about this in my newsletter this morning. You know, I regret to tell you the gap between Marjorie Taylor Greene, the right wing media and Republicans in the Senate like Josh Hawley is, is shrinking. So after the announcement that uh, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Mitt Romney were all uh, going to vote for Katanji Brown-Jackson, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted out yesterday, Murkowski, Collins, and Romney are pro-pedophile. They just voted for KBJ. And then we get this truly revolting insinuation from Federalist editor and Bradley Prize winner Molly Hemingway, who wrote, tweeted uh, about Mitt Romney's endorsement of uh, KBJ. The only new info since he voted against her a few months ago was increased awareness of her, quote, soft on pedos, unquote, approach, which makes this new Romney position super interesting. Really super interesting, as Steve Hayes from uh, <sighs> The Dispatch said, why, why is it super interesting? Say what you mean, enough bullshit innuendo. Are you suggesting that Mitt Romney is a pedophile or just pro-pedophile, you coward? Which,, um, I think slightly understates the legitimate reaction. So I, you know, Liz, from across the aisle, what does this look like that that it it feels like within the last just few weeks, the right wing and the Republican Party are just all in, not just on the culture war in general, because that's not new, but all in on it's all about the gays. It's all about the gays, and this pivot to if you support gay rights or you oppose anti-gay legislation, then you're not just wrong on the issue; you're a groomer or a pedophile, and and here you have this coming from elected members of the of Congress.
1: Yeah. Well, I, what the hell? Yeah, I, it's obviously it's very troubling. And keep in mind that Ketanji Brown Jackson is someone who was endorsed by the FOP, um, supported by former Bush cops, administration yeah. officials. I don't think anyone thinks that the Fraternal Order of Police is a pro-pedo. Organization and the hearings, I think, were extremely dis- disgraceful um, for Republicans like Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz. It was sort of a race to the bottom. And while I don't think the hearings are, you know, really penetrated that much with voters. It does signal to me an opportunity for Democrats to go on the offensive a little bit more on the culture wars. We've been getting hosed a little bit um, in recent months on these issues. Yeah, a little bit. And we can talk (laughs) about that later. And I'd be happy to. I think that Democrats have not been handling these issues great. But this gives us an opportunity to say, hey, if Democrats are disciplined to go out in the midterms. Talk about how they want to reduce healthcare costs, increase wages, you know, provide more economic relief to uh, the American people, and Republicans are focused on, uh, you know, these bizarre pedo attacks, banning books, um, you know, finding solutions to problems that don't exist. And if your your issue as a voter is that you're sick of the chaos in Washington, you're sick of things getting done, then. Republicans, you know, aren't there looking out for you uh, because there's not some big pedo epidemic in the country. Um, And I think that this is exhibit A of how, uh, of what Republicans will do if they take, if when they take back the House and Senate, and it would be a disaster for the American people who are feeling pain with inflation and the economy.
0: Okay, this this all this all makes sense, but why is it not happening? And I guess this comes to this basic question you you have, uh, you have the Republican Party. This is the party of uh, Madison Cawthorn and Paul Gosar and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene out there, um, you know, pursuing these these extremist, batshit crazy ideas. And yet, Democrats are losing to them. How can Democrats be losing to a party this unhinged? And I guess this comes back to the you're, you're saying that this is an opportunity. Why have they not taken advantage of this? Mona Charn in The Bulwark, you know, raises the question, you know, these are really despicable people. These are people who go to white supremacist uh, conferences. And yet the average American doesn't know who they are. Right. Why have Democrats failed so, you know, dramatically in making them the face of the Republican Party?
1: Hmm. Um, so a few things, I- you know, I don't – and I, I read a Politico story the other day um, with some Democrats saying, let's make Madison Cawthorn the face of the party. Mm-hmm. I just – I don't think that that is going to be an effective strategy. And um, I don't think that nationalizing uh, these races is going to be effective for Democrats. I really, really think that Democrats need to look to the strategies that worked in cycles like 2018 where, yeah, you had a batshit crazy guy – as the commander in chief, you know, Donald Trump, yeah. who every day was out there tweeting batshit crazy stuff. But Democrats didn't, you know, run ads with their hair on fire about him. They kept they stayed focused on the bread and butter issues that the American people care about. Health care, wages, you know, the s- sexy things that maybe don't drive um, uh, eyeballs to MSNBC, but mm-hmm. are the things that voters care about. The issue that voters ha- the, that Democrats have is the environment. Um, the job market is strong, sure, but people are, are really feeling the pinch of inflation, and we really, really, really need to understand where voters are and talk to them about the issues that they care about. It's inflation, um, you know, the rise in violent crime,
0: right.
1: uh, concerns about about education and school closing and the fact that we as democrats are seen as you know less in touch with uh voters on the economy that we're at a deficit on the on education issues that should be um that is really troubling to me and i think that those are the things that we should focus on versus getting into this back and forth on the culture wars with them
0: okay so how um how do you explain that that deficit is it just a messaging problem or is it that uh, the you know, high-profile Democrats really are out of touch with with what the sentiment of the public is on on those kinds of issues? Uh,
1: I I chalk it up to the environment, and I you know I hate to use this word; it's the dirtiest word in in American politics. But there is a sense of malaise out there mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. two <laughs> after oh, and
0: all that Jimmy Carter vibe. I know, it, okay. I know, I know, I
1: know, PTSD. Uh. But after two years of a pandemic if you look at focus groups you hear people say that they're tired they're exhausted they're hopeless you know they yeah. see inflation um you know there's been a spike in mental health uh yeah. mental health problems schools have been closed um crime has has gone up and you see that voters can't really identify anything that Democrats have done. And it's not because Democrats haven't done anything. It's again, that people do feel, um, this sense of malaise post pandemic. Right. And I think the way that Democrats have got to break through it is to say, yes, I understand your pain. I feel your pain and we, um, need to continue to address the problems, but let's look at what the Republicans are offering. Well, you know, wait,
0: the- wait, 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 but before we, before we, we, we get to that, why has that not happened yet?
1: Um, well,
0: I mean, what, what is this, this, this disconnect? Well, is it because, I mean, I hear, I've i heard people say, well, it's because, you know, Democrats don't tout their accomplishments. They don't say it enough. Is is that really an explanation, though, for why there is this, this disconnect?
1: Well, I don't know that going out there and, and touting our accomplishments is the best strategy right now. We've okay. gone out there, we've talked about ARP, we've talked about BIF, but- you know, Americans are still hurting. And whenever we go out there and say the job market's so great, unemployment is so low, it doesn't really connect with how voters feel. And we're uh-huh. not going to be able to, you know, um, to tell voters that their feelings aren't legitimate. And-
0: Ooh, that's what- interesting. So, I mean, there, there really is a, a, a conflict between touting your accomplishments and then being in touch with, I feel your pain- that the voters are feeling, or their, their disillusionment.
1: Yeah, and and <laughs> we saw that in 2010. I was in Ohio in 2010. I was the communications director for um, the governor at the time, Ted Strickland. And on the national level, you had Barack Obama going out there and saying, "Look at how many jobs we've added post recession. We're on the rebound." But voters didn't really feel it. And what we had to do in Ohio was one, you know, run. A more localized race that was divorced from sort of the um, national atmosphere, and go on the offensive against a Republican opponent, um, and say, you know, this is a guy who wants to give tax breaks to the rich, outsource jobs, um, you know, uh, doesn't support yeah. Obamacare, whatever it is. And and I really think that what Democrats need to do is is go on the offensive in that way against. Um, wait,
0: wait, but that didn't work. It, that it, didn't work in Well,
1: we we significantly overperformed um, Democrats in other races. Uh, it, it, Ted lost by right. 2.0 points versus you know the shellacking that Democrats took in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and um, Wisconsin. It, yeah, and Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So similar ones, but and Ted's race was held up as you know one of the best. Um, losing campaigns at this cycle because we were able to go more on the offensive. It wasn't enough. This is not,
0: this is, this is not reassuring.
1: I uh, know, I know,
0: this is, this is oddly not reassuring because I will, I will tell you that I remember t- t- 2010 very, very well Yeah. Um. because this year feels very much like that mood, that there's just kind of like this huge thing that, I mean, that, that, you know, I don't wave, but I mean, some, sometimes the environment is, as you point out, the, the environment is so overwhelming that no matter how good your campaign is or no matter what your talking points are, you're just not going to break through.
1: Right. And and you have a feeling that it could be like 2010. It could be like 2018. um, And there have been some indicators that, you know, don't bode well. The Virginia governor's race, um, the New Jersey governor's race, which was extremely close and, for us to minimize our losses, we really do need to draw that contrast. But I think where you and I maybe disagree here, Charlie, is I don't necessarily think it's got to be um, a top-down thing that's being led by Chuck Schumer and Democrats in Washington. I think it's really hmm. incumbent on members of the House, you know, Senate candidates, to really run their own races to not tie themselves necessarily to the national Democratic brand and go on the offense against Republicans and say that, Every step of the way. Actually, um, we and, do agree on this. Yeah. yeah, that that I do agree with you. Yeah, and but that you know the, these are people who are trying to take credit for things that they voted against. You know, an ARP with Biff, and um, they're offering absolutely no solutions for what they would do over the next two years. Like, let's be real about what's going to happen if the Republicans take the House, if they take the Senate. It's going to be nonstop hearings about Hunter Biden. It's going to be the culture wars that we've seen in the States, the war against transgender people, war against CRT. And what is that going to do to help people economically? Nothing. And I think that those are the sorts of contrasts that we need to drive.
0: You know, um, you know, since we're in historical analogies, you know, I, I keep thinking of Harry Truman back in nineteen forty-eight. You know, after the Democrats shellacking in the in the midterm elections of nineteen forty-six, uh, now the Republicans control. They were in power. This is the, the slight, you know, complication here. They were in power back then, at least in in, in Congress, and and Truman ran against the do nothing Congress. And you know, it, it's it's much more complicated for the Democrats because you're in charge of everything. And so therefore right. you're responsible for everything. But your your point is, you know, turn this around and say, look, uh, you, you have a Republican Party that has no agenda. I mean, they don't want to do anything. Well, okay, with the, with with one possible exception, he says, interrupting himself. What do you think about the Rick Scott gambit, where he's basically saying, yes, we absolutely ought to raise taxes on the 50% of Americans that don't pay them? Is is that is that a uh, is that a target rich environment do you think for Democrats?
1: Yeah, it is. And and I don't know how much, you know, talking about the Rick Scott agenda is going to work in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, yeah. wherever it is. But locking the GOP, locking Republicans into their unpopular positions is really important for Democrats. And while the Democratic brand might be hurting, we see in poll after poll That Democratic priorities are largely popular, Republican priorities are not. And we've got to be very explicit about what the Republican Party supports and what they don't support. They're a party that supports tax rates for the rich. Uh, Democrats are a party that supports, you know, lowering healthcare costs, expanding Medicaid for home care, um, making sure Mm -hmm. Medicare can negotiate prescription drug costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the more that we can show that Republicans are actually the party that's out of touch, Democrats are the people who uh, feel your pain, understand the concerns of Mm middle-class families, the better for us. And the Rick Scott plan provides sort of a blueprint for that.
0: Okay. So I I want to talk to you about uh, the various Senate primaries, uh, the role of crazy on uh, both sides of the aisle or, or extreme on both sides of the aisle, and also get your take on uh, Joe Biden. But let's do this after this. As you probably noticed, the cost of everything continues to rise. And I mean everything, especially if there's an interest rate tied to it. Have you seen some of those numbers lately? Debt is about to get much more expensive very soon. You've got to take care of it before it's too late. And you can get a great deal right now by calling American Financing because their mortgage consultants review your entire financial picture, helping you save up to $1,000 a month, whether it's a lower rate or debt consolidation, even helping you access cash. They can do it all, but only if it's going to make a difference for you. So why not learn more? If you start soon, you could skip two payments and maybe close in as fast as 10 days, call 888-991-9788. That's 888-991-9788. Or visit americanfinancing.net and tell them that Charlie Sykes sent you. NMLS 182334 nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Okay, we are back uh, with Liz Smith who was uh, the senior communications director for Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. I guess can I ask you a really awkward question?
1: Uh, well, I guess I don't really have, have much of an option, but go ahead.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Joe Biden. Yeah. How is Joe Biden doing, you know, in 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 terms of the presidential leadership? Because his poll numbers are just absolutely abysmal. And look, a lot of it does have to do with the environment and inflation. But I think I just sense there's this, this disconnect that voters are are actually thinking that maybe he's a little old, that he's a little slow, that he has not really been able to connect with the public in a way that I think a lot of people thought that he was before the 2020 elections. I just want to get your sense because you were in the you were in the trenches during the, that campaign. He's the leader of your party. Give me your report card on on, on Joe Biden. And why Joe Biden's numbers are so awful right now?
1: Well. The reality is, and it's this isn't really something that he can say, um, but it's not dissimilar from what Barack Obama faced in, you know, the first couple years of his term, which is that he was handed a shit sandwich, Um, Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of things that are out of his control. Uh, COVID, you know, the Mm never-ending variants, um, and the general sense of exhaustion that COVID has produced in the American, uh, public inflation, you know, Joe Biden, Joe Biden can't, um, you know, single-handedly, uh, fix the supply chain or fix gas prices. But the problem when you're present is that the buck stops with you, you get blamed for everything. So a lot of these things are out of his control and it might be unfair to, um, blame him for them, but the American people do. And that, again, is why I think it's important to for him to go more on the offensive. The issue I see with Joe Biden is that he's not the type of guy that is hyper-partisan, that likes to go hyper-negative against his opponents. That's not something that comes naturally to him. Um, and that might be holding him back a lot. But really, I, I think that his numbers come down largely to things that are out of his control. And that's why, to the extent he, he can control things, like framing the attack against the Republicans, he really should try to do. And I'd like to see the White House do that more.
0: But there are a lot of things that are, are within his control. And, you know, I, 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 again, he has been somewhat undisciplined in his rhetoric. Um, he stepped on his own lines. I mean, I think, you know, a perfect example of this was just, was it last week? I've lost track of time here. Uh, When he was in Poland and gave a very, very strong speech about about the war in Ukraine and then stepped on it by saying that Vladimir Putin needs to be, uh, you know, cannot be allowed to remain in office. And then his White House walked it back. I mean, it's those moments like that where you go, come on. Come on, man. Come on, man.
1: I, so... uh... You know, there's a reason on campaigns that um, I'm never very popular among either the foreign policy advisors or the lawyers, uh, because I tend to think that foreign policy advisors are a little uh, a little too conservative sometimes in the advice that they give. I did not think that what Joe Biden said was this massive, massive gaffe. Yeah. Um, and you've seen him sort of stand by some of his stronger comments in yeah. recent days about Vladimir. Well, he was right Putin. the
0: first time. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Was there in the moment, was there a little confusion about it? Yeah. But overall, I don't think that they needed to walk that back in the way that they did. And, the problem with Ukraine is just that foreign policy is not top of mind for the American people. Even now. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look at the polls, it's, it really is the economy. It's all coming down to the economy. Um, And yeah, they see the, the tragic photos coming out of Ukraine. They see the TV reports, but it's not something that touches their everyday lives. And there is a big disconnect between, you know, maybe what you and I care about, what people on cable news care about, and what the American people care about. And again, if you look at focus groups, what people care about, it's education, it's um, inflation, it's violent crime, People really aren't bringing up Ukraine. They're not bringing up the war in Russia. They're not. They're just not. Hmm. They just aren't. Because it it doesn't touch their everyday lives. And the more that Democrats understand that we need to speak to kitchen table issues, the better off we'll be. And when Democrats do that, that is when we win.
0: Okay. You've addressed, I think, one of the most important questions, which is, will Ukraine— move the needle at all does ukraine change anything is there this slide in public opinion because sometimes it takes something really dramatic to change public opinion you know after pearl harbor after 911 um, right 911 is, is is yeah. is not here you know i was thinking about these these issues that you just mentioned whether it is inflation whether it is education and a year ago One of the themes that that I picked up from from Democrats, including many of the talking heads on cable TV that you just referenced, was kind of a denial that these were serious problems, that that it's been belated that there really was no crime problem. I can't tell you how many articles I read from people who say, oh, no, inflation is is exaggerated. Well, no, there's no problem going on in the schools. We shouldn't actually be concerned about all of this. I think this is a problem for Democrats that they have been late to the party acknowledging the reality of these, these concerns. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I know. And I can agree with you more. Um You you have seen a pivot, though, with Joe Biden, you know, certainly in his Mm -hmm. um, State of the Union and in in recent weeks, he's been talking more about public safety um, and things like that. But it doesn't do the Democrats any favors when we deny the realities that people see every day, you know, in their communities uh, that they see at the grocery store that they see when there's a shooting on their block and. There is a big disconnect, again, between sort of the Democratic pundits in Washington who try to pretend these aren't real issues, the far-left people on Twitter, and, you know, Democrats in communities across the country. And the one frustrating thing for me sometimes about the Democratic Party is we don't take a beat to really listen to people and listen to their concerns. We saw this in the Virginia governor's race where we just dismissed suburban voters' concerns with education, with school closures, with mass mandates, even the, you know, sort of trumped up hysteria around CRT, we didn't take a second to actually listen to them um, before responding. Instead, we just, you know, sort of blew it off and said, you know, this is all a... a figment of Fox News's imagination. And that's not how we're going to win over these people. Or or
0: attack Uh, them as saying that if you're raising these concerns, you must be because you're a bigot, which of course completely shuts down the discussion.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That you're a racist, you're a white supremacist and, you know, Where I'm from, um, insulting the customer is not a great electoral strategy. And uh, Virginia governor's race was a great example of that. And I have seen some polling recently. The NRCC put out some polling recently that showed um, that voters uh, view the Democrats oftentimes as condescending and out of touch. And that's a big problem for us. And we can't become a party... um, that is viewed as you know school marms as looking down on everyone and that calls everyone who disagrees with us you know homophobe a racist a transphobe a white supremacist or whatever we need to start listening to people and understand that there are some legitimate anxieties legitimate concerns that undergird you know some of the issues around schools and some of these social issues that we need to address so you
0: got me thinking about something. I I, I want to get to, you know, so, some of the issues, in, including, you know, what happens to the midterms if Roe versus Wade is, is overturned. But to your point about not insulting the customers, um, one of the things that you all did during the Buddha Judge campaign and, and, and afterwards was that that Pete was willing to go on Fox News. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of people's eyebrows went up like, really, do you actually think that you're going to be able to reach these people? Uh, so. You know, talk to me a little bit about that thinking, because there is a school of thought that is you have to, it, it, you know, the Fox News audience is, is lost. Uh, there's no point talking with them. You cannot reason with them. It is tribal. It is a waste of time. Obviously, you disagree with that. So what was your thinking and, and, and Pete judge thinking about saying, I'm going to go right into the belly of the beast and I'm going to talk to them? What were you hoping to accomplish? And do you think you did accomplish anything?
1: Well, to answer your last question, yes, I know that we accomplished um, something, but there are two parts to why Democrats should go on Fox News. One, it's got a massive audience and sure- there are the dead enders, the people we won't win over um, who, who tune in there. But you do have a lot of independents and you do have a lot of Democrats still who watch Fox News and the Democrats who tend to watch Fox News, a lot of them are you know based in more conservative communities. A lot of them are black Democrats. A lot of them are you know Latino Democrats. And, you know, when they have their water cooler discussions at their workplaces, you know, they're going to be watching the same things that they're uh, co-workers watch and that's going to be fox news you know not msnbc so i i do think that there still is a persuadable um, audience on there you see a lot of democrats still who go mm. on there you see you know mark warner's on there a lot you know mark kelly um uh goes on there a fair amount democrats who are you know seen as more centrist or who Need to win over not just diehard Democrats, but Independents and some Republicans, but the second element there is what it signals. Um, voters still do like bipartisanship. Voters still like politicians yeah. who reach across the aisle in good faith. Um, they aren't, you know, enamored with this nonstop partisan warfare except for the people on the hard left and hard right. And what it signals uh, when a Democrat goes on Fox news is that there's someone who is willing to work across the aisle. There's some, someone who respects, you know, Fox news viewers, maybe someone who's going to bring down the temperature a little bit. And that's what has been a successful recipe for people like Mark Kelly, who is going to have a tough race coming up in November. And, So there's both the, yeah, winning over the audience, but what it signals to voters that you're willing to go on there. Because fundamentally, if you say, I'm not going on Fox News... It's disrespectful to all the people who hmm. watch it. A- and it says to them, I'm too good to go on here. I'm not even going to try to win over your vote. And the Which more people- reinforces
0: that stereotype, exactly. right? I mean, it reinforces the stereotype. Well, while going on actually explodes the stereotype because, you know, my, my experience has been, you know, you talk to uh, many of the Fox News listeners and they have this image of, of Democrats, as you know, you hate America, you hate God, you hate all things that are good. And then when you go on and you're reasonable... It's like, whoa, okay, well, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a myth buster.
1: Right. It, and it has it's a certain harder for, power. You know. Yeah. And it's harder for them to caricature Democrats if you go on there. And how can we expect them to believe anything but the caricature of us if we don't go and speak to them directly. Um, and that's why I'm a big believer in sort of piercing these partisan bubbles um, and making sure that we talk hmm. to as many different audiences as, as possible. Now, I'm not saying that Democrats should go on Tucker. I'm not saying that they should go on Laura Ingram's show, but, you know, America's Newsroom, Fox and Friends, um, hmm. A variety of, they're less opinionated shows. I know that, yeah, sometimes Fox and Friends can be crazy town, but that there's value in going on there, going on with Brett Baier, going on Fox News Sunday, and trying to reach those audiences and break through the caricature that, that some of the audience has of Democrats is a smart idea.
0: Okay, so I, I want to get to this question of what happens with Roe sometime this summer, but let's do this on the other side. How do you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is that most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers like you. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and then sell that data to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is ExpressVPN? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all of your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, the list of people you've messaged, sites you have visited, videos you've watched get tracked by the tech giants who can sell your information for profit. That's the reason that I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you are protected. Now look, I've been doing a lot of searches on Russian information, Russian websites, and frankly, I don't know who's tracking or who is watching this. So I am really grateful that I have ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by Business Insider and The Verge. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN that I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com bulwark. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash bulwark to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com bulwark right now to learn more. OK, we're back with Liz uh, Smith. OK, I want to talk about uh, some of the Senate races, the Senate primaries right right now, a very scrambled uh, picture. But give me your sense. There is a conventional wisdom of which way the, the midterms are going. And I think conventional wisdom is probably correct. But one of the big wild cards is uh Supreme Court decision on Roe. So what happens in the event that Roe versus Wade is overturned by the conservative majority on the Supreme Court?
1: Well, you were talking before about sort of what would you need to turn the tide in an election, and mm-hmm. you mentioned nine eleven, you know, an event sort of of that level. Roe v. Wade is one of those things that could potentially turn the tide for Democrats, you know, that could have a cataclysmic effect on Republicans' chances. Because the reality is that, you know, a majority of Americans are for legalized abortion with, you know, some level of restrictions. Um, But they believe by and large that abortion should be legal um, when a mother's health, life is at risk if they're um, a victim of rape or incest, yada, yada, yada. And for years, we've seen Republicans campaign against Roe v. Wade. You know, for what is it now, four decades? And my theory is that it's Republicans' worst nightmare if Roe v. Wade is overturned, because my guess is that they would love to run against it for another forty years. But when oh, yeah. it is overturned, it's sort of like the dog that that caught the car. What are the, What are you guys so. going to do then? Um, and this gives the opportunity for Democrats to say. There are some real, there's some real life and death shit at stake here. Um, and if we don't have a democratic Senate, um, you know, this is what happens when we don't have a democratic Senate. We get a Supreme court that looks like this. Um, this is what happens when we don't have democratic governors, democratic state legislatures, is you get these state laws that are so extreme that it makes it, you know, nigh on impossible for women facing tough situations. To get abortions, and it allows us really to go on the offensive and frame the Republicans as the people who are, you know, completely out of touch and um, obsessed with culture wars, obsessed with dictating your day to day lives, including very, very personal health choices. And I, it is my hope that uh, Roe v. Wade isn't overturned. I guess we'll have to see what what happens. But if it is. It is something that I think will be a big motivating fact for Democrats and something that will bring back the disaffected Biden voters, you know, the some of the people that we saw, you know, defect to Youngkin, for instance, in the Virginia governor's race. Bring some of those f- folks back into the fold, because I think that's going to be a bridge too far for a lot of voters.
0: So speaking of the United States Senate and the the Supreme Court, uh, Lindsey Graham said yesterday that if Republicans controlled the Senate, uh, you know, uh, KBJ would not even have been in front of the committee, that they wouldn't have even had a hearing for her. I think there was uh, some wish casting before the hearings began that maybe Republicans would go easy on her. They knew that they wouldn't <laughs> be able to block her. Uh, she's an historic appointment. Republicans uh, talk a good game about trying to make inroads into the African American vote. And yet, we know how that all turned out. We were you at all surprised by the degree to which Republicans basically decided, apparently, that they didn't give a shit? They didn't care. They were going to go after her. And they were going to hammer her. They were going to smear her in any way possible. And I guess I was struck by the fact that. That anxiety that existed at one time—hey, you don't want to appear to be, you know, going over the line or beating up on a, you know, uh, you know, an African American or beating up on a woman—they just don't care anymore. I mean, they, and they—they they are completely confident that they will pay no political price for this; that this is a winner for them.
1: So, I—I I don't think any of us should have been surprised. No, some of those clips are, frankly. Horrifying to watch of whether it was Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham berating her. You know, Lindsey Graham especially, um, you know, got really hot with her. And you know, these are some of the most self-serving people in the U.S. Senate, and they're all vying to sort of position themselves as Trump 2.0. So I think they're concerned more about their standing. You know, I think Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton. Ted Cruz are sort of engaged in a race to the bottom to position themselves as, you know, Trump 2.0 in the, you know, in case Trump doesn't run in, in 2024. But, I don't think they necessarily cared about how it looked for the broader GOP no, ban- they don't. brand. And the reality is that these hearings were largely um, overshadowed by the, um, by the events in, in Ukraine. But if you look at Jackson, you know, she came in with more support since any Supreme Court justice since John Roberts. And it was a good, big win for Democrats because we can now turn to the base and say, look, I know things aren't perfect. I know we haven't fixed everything. I know you're feeling the pain of inflation and everything, but we did deliver this big win for you. And we did, Hmm. you know, deliver progressive justice to the Supreme court. Um, And it, and it gives us a split screen just to, to, if, to use the comments of the Holly, the cotton, the Cruz say, these guys aren't interested in, in, you know, helping you out day to day and lowering your costs. What they're interested in is, you know, talking about racist babies and pedophiles and um, and these conspiracy theories when we're focused on, you know, delivering you guys relief. And I think it was helpful to Democrats uh, in that regard.
0: Well, that's interesting because the attacks on Brett Kavanaugh served to mobilize Republican voters, I think, in 2018. You're suggesting that the attacks on KBJ could mobilize Democratic voters.
1: They could. They could. Yeah, I I don't know. And and one other thing I would say about Kavanaugh is the way that Democrats handled it did turn off a lot of independents, too. I mean, it was a disaster of a hearing, and I, I saw Murkowski's... Statement yesterday saying that these hearings have become completely divorced from reality, have become complete circuses. And I couldn't agree more. And I just don't know how we sort of unring that bell and make it so that these aren't just these apocalyptic uh, events anymore.
0: No, um, I think this has now become our political reality. All right. So on the Senate, the Senate is very much in play. It strikes me is that both political parties um, are, you know, might uh, lose on un- unlosable seats. So tell me that the Senate, uh, the Senate primaries, the Senate races that you're most interested in that you're paying the most attention to.
1: <sighs> um. It, well, you know, big Senate races. We've got Wisconsin, Pennsylvania,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Georgia. Um, Ohio. I Oh yeah, Ohio. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm close with Tim Ryan. I've been watching that race closely. And rather than listing them off, I'll just sort of yeah. talk about some of them that I find interesting. You know, Ohio it used to be a swing state. Uh it is trended redder and redder over the years. But it's interesting to me in that Tim Ryan is someone who is really stiff arming the culture wars, and just leaning very, very hard into economic issues. And, you know, he came out with an ad last week that was just all about China and, um, you know, China's global competitor and the need for us to be able to compete on a global stage with China. It's a powerful message in Ohio. It's one that de- Democrats have, you know, like Obama, um, Sherrod Brown, have used to their advantage in uh You know, in the elections, few elections that Democrats have won there in recent years. And I think it's a really smart strategy, especially when you see the Republican primary has become, you know, crazy town Um, and you have, you know, sort of. a sociopath and J.D. Vance running against a psychopath and Josh Mandel. It's a true race to the bottom of, you know, who can be phonier, who can be Trumpier, who can deny the results of the last election more. And it's one of those situations where you could see in a tough environment that you would never think Democrats have an opportunity to win a seat like that. But if Republicans do nominate Someone like Josh Mandel and you do have a Tim Ryan going out there being extremely disciplined that they could beat back the trend.
0: The uh, same situation in Georgia where uh, Republicans appear to be poised to nominate Herschel Walker. Now, again, uh, given the climate of the year, it would seem that that Warnock, uh, the incumbent Democrat, would be really, really vulnerable. The Republicans have a great chance to pick up that seat. Uh, Are Republicans at risk of blowing that seat by putting up somebody as problematic as Herschel Walker? Or am I underestimating his celebrity clout?
1: Yeah. And and again, and, you know, Herschel Walker is one of the more problematic Republican you know, candidates to cycle. You have a similar thing in, in Missouri with Eric Greitens, who's yeah. right now being accused of abuse by his ex-wife, on top of having to resign for you know tying North up a woman in his basement, taking photos of her naked, trying to, uh you know blackmail her with them etc cetera, et cetera. this and is how
0: naive i am I, I i would have thought that those things would have been disqualifying but what do i know
1: i, I well you know <laughs> in a democratic primary maybe <laughs> no, but it think, just seems yeah. like all that it just seems like you know in the post-trump era that none of these things matter anymore for, no. for republicans yeah. and the party well, fam- is really testing
0: yeah, yeah grans is really testing the limits of the post-shame uh, trump era isn't he though
1: Right. No, and, and that really will be the ultimate test. Um, but, you know, there's another story that came out this morning about Griden's where his ex-wife oh. says he she has photos documenting some of the abuse against his family. So, yeah, oh. Republicans do have, um, you know, issues in these primaries where they could go too far and nominate someone who is sort of beyond the pale. And it calls to mind the... Alabama primary where Republicans lined up behind Roy Moore, and we all know what happened there. But Democrats, you know, we do have some issues. (laughs) We have some issues on our own side. Um, And, you know, you're pretty familiar with Wisconsin, and that is a primary that should create some agita um, for Democrats. And to be clear— the issues that we face on our side are people embracing policies that are, you know, too far left outside the mainstream. They're not embr- well, embracing conspiracy theories. They're not no. accused of being, you know, wife abusers or or things like that. So I'm not at all trying to equate the two things. Um, but if Democrats embrace these policies and and lose, you know, that that's a big problem for us. And and Wisconsin. Oh, sorry, I- it, is Exhibit A. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. Well, I agree with you completely on that. I'm, an, I'm on. I am on record as saying, look, uh, Ron Johnson is incredibly vulnerable. He's deeply underwater, but he can be reelected. He can win yeah. if the Democrats nominate somebody who uh, can credibly be accused of, you know, wanting to abolish ICE and, and defunding police, and you know, again, yada yada yada. But uh, Mandela Barnes is the leading candidate, the uh, sitting incumbent uh, lieutenant governor. If he wins that primary and he is the front runner. I think Ron Johnson gets another six years in office. Um, Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Mandela Barnes is an oppo research dream. I mean, he posted a picture of himself holding up a T-shirt saying abolish ICE that had been sent to him by the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, He has spoken at the defund police rallies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It's it's not going to be hard, a, a heavy lift for Republicans to be able to do that. And again, I understand all of the... Baggage that in the, the, the radicalism uh, and the irresponsibility and the recklessness of Ron Johnson. But um, knowing Wisconsin politics, knowing what the climate is this year, the Democrats nominate Mandela Barnes, they hand the seat away. Give me your sense of Pennsylvania, though. Pennsylvania is another seat that I think that Democrats have a reasonable shot at, or should at least on paper. But you have a centrist Democrat, almost from central casting, centrist Democrat, Connor Lamb trailing, um, the much, much, much more progressive John Fetterman. Um, is that analogous? Do you see that uh, in the, in the same way as Wisconsin?
1: I do, except Fetterman does have, um, you know, some cred, uh, you know, he's someone who hasn't gone, um, super far left and, uh, you know, mm. Called for banning fracking mm. uh, and things like that. He's, you know, I know Mandela is in support of the Green New Deal, which I think is just going to be is extremely Foxy. tone deaf in the current environment when people are really concerned about um, gas prices. And I, you know, another concern that I have about um, Fetterman is. You know, this incident in his past where he sort of, um, you know, chased down when he was mayor of of Braddock and he chased down a a black jogger um, with a gun because, you know, he, you know, thought that some crime or something had been committed. And if I'm the Republicans, I would just, you know, um, carpet bomb black radio. uh, It will With that um, in the general election to depress turnout. And this is a tactic that didn't get a ton of attention in both 2016 and 2020. But that is what Trump did in, um, you know, on black radio in Milwaukee, in and in, I, I know I've talked to a lot of folks in Michigan, in Detroit, where he went super hard against Hillary Clinton for her super predator comments. Yeah. Super hard against Joe Biden um, on his you know support for the crime bill. And I would be afraid that Republicans could run with that playbook again. And have a, a candidate like McCormick who can try to run a, a, you know, young, youngkin kind of race. So I, you know, I personally, that's
0: exactly
1: uh, right. yeah. yeah uh, so, so I think that there are two issues there, which is one, you know, on uh, certain issues like Medicare for all, uh, John Fetterman has embraced issues that are outside the m- mainstream. You know, when, even when democratic voters have, medicare for all explained to them um a majority of them don't support it that is just not a winner in a general election but then there's this other issue where i could see republicans using his issues to depress base turnout
0: oh i think i think you can absolutely bank on that i don't think there's any question about it whatsoever and and you're right oh i mean connor lamb at the, the debate they had over the weekend that fetterman didn't show up at said look um uh, you know the the socialist label can be stuck on him. I mean, he's a yep. former. You know, he has supported Bernie Sanders. He he's he's out there. He's tried to walk back from some of the more extreme positions. But if if you're McCormick, if if he were to win that primary, that's a matchup Republicans really would like. I think you know as opposed to running against a a mainstream centrist type uh, uh, Democrat. But again, you're you're really seeing this this contrast in the Democratic primaries in Wisconsin. And Pennsylvania, I think the most dramatically. Yeah. And,
1: yeah. And, and uh, you know, one thing that we've seen is voters really do value independence. They value bipartisanship. Again, these aren't sexy things. They don't get a ton of um, traffic on cable news. They don't drive Traffic on cable news, but there are the things that—that's what voters like. And Connor Lamb has certainly been independent in Washington. He's got a great bio. Um, you know, he's a—he's a veteran, and he is someone who does isn't he's won toxic. elections. He's won elections in tough yeah. districts, and yeah. is not all about partisan conflict. He's about getting things done, and I think that. The more Democrats we have that are um, focused on results, solutions, working across the aisle to get that done, I think those are the types of Democrats that will win in 2022.
0: Liz Smith, thank you so much. Um, our mutual friend, Tim Miller, has been saying for months, you have to get Liz on the the podcast. She will be great. Actually, you exceeded all expectations. Thank you so much.
1: Great. And thanks. You know, I always, I considered Tim my brother from another mother. So thank you to Tim. And Charlie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Well, thank you. It was great. We will definitely have you back on. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.